Good morning. Such a joy to be here with you, and it's such a joy to be led by elders who prepare our hearts to hear this morning. Thank you, Philip, for leading us this morning. Uh, I tell you, it is, it is a joy to work alongside these men who who are committed to one another, who enjoy one another, who study the word together, who love you. And because of our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, our desire is to accurately handle this word of truth that we've been given, to know who Jesus, to know who God is. Every week I'm also studying uh, the passage that will be preached the following Friday with a group, a uh, community group that comes to my house. Uh, this week in the community group uh, was especially helpful, you'll be glad, uh, that I, even our time on Wednesday just helped me to see the direction of our passage even that much more clearly. These folks, they sacrifice their time to come together each week. People like Romana and Chris and Guggen and, and Rahel, they, they work these crazy long hours. They're tired, but they come together every week to study the word. We have Nigerians and Indians, Kiwis and Kenyans, Asians and Africans and Americans. And we, we don't have anything really in common except Christ and his church. It's not really for social reasons that we come together, although we do have a lot of fun together, I would say. It's not for the food, though Maria makes some really awesome desserts. It's because the gospel has so transformed our lives, and we want to dive into the scripture together to learn, to grow, to be challenged, and to encourage one another each week as we come together. Look, if you're not a part of a community group, let me encourage you, as a part of your discipleship even, to turn to page 13 in your bulletin today. Look for a community group in your area. Maybe there's not one. Ask Glenn Jones, ask one of the elders, which one should I get involved in? Or, or even ask them, how could I start one? Look, I want to I thank God for these brothers and sisters, both in my community group and the elders, who sharpen my understanding of the Bible and help me to remember the gospel, and apply it to my life. Throughout the scripture, God is consistently calling his people to remember. And here Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 8, with that same imperative, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, Descended from David. The offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now, Paul began this letter by uh, with his threefold remembering of Timothy. He remembered him in prayer. He remembers his tears as they parted company. He remembers his faith as, as, as it was passed down from his grandmother and to his mother and, and to him. And he calls Timothy to be reminded of the power of God that's and the Spirit of God that is at work in him. Lots of remembering going on. Paul calls Timothy to remember this for reason. So that Timothy 
will not be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul and will share in suffering for the gospel. This is the the thrust of Paul's exhortations to Timothy throughout chapters one and up to our point, the point where we are now in chapter two. And last week, Jason showed us that Paul's great concern was that Timothy would pass on this gospel, which had been entrusted to Paul, that Timothy would entrust it to reliable men who would also be qualified to teach others. This gospel is to be passed down. It is to be Handed down. Paul warns Timothy that it it won't be easy. But he can take heart in the power of God to preserve the gospel. I know whom I have believed, he says. And I am convinced that he is able to guard that which has been entrusted to me. That brings us to our passage today in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. We've already had it read, but just to, to say the conclusion, of, this is the conclusion of Paul's first round of exhortations to Timothy in this letter. Uh, how can I bring you the essence of what Paul is summarizing in two whole chapters in such a little time? I wish we had hours, but we don't. You know, um, actually, this is the, the, the last sermon that I'm going to preach to you as an elder here at Redeemer. Uh, by September, I'll be completing my sixth year as an elder here. Of course, that doesn't mean that I, um, I'll fade off into oblivion. Uh, neither does it mean that I'll lose my shepherding mojo. <laughs> but I say this to urge you to listen, even as Paul was urging Timothy in writing his last letter. As we walk through the passage today, I want to charge you in three things, two imperatives and one reason for those imperatives. Firstly, remember the reality of the gospel. Remember the reality of the gospel. Secondly, endure everything for the gospel. Church, we are called to remember the reality of the gospel and to endure everything for the gospel. And, and the, the, the reason we can do that is because the word of God is not bound. That's our three points of our sermon today. Remember the reality of the gospel. Don't reinvent. Remember, don't reinvent. The gospel is An historical event. It happened in real time. It was planned in the mind of God before creation. And in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul walks through that gospel with uh, with Timothy. He says that it's the message of God that leads to salvation. It's from ages past and has now been revealed in the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus came because we are all Sinners, We've turned away from God's right rule with the desire to be the masters of our own lives. The outcome of this turning is condemnation. It's banishment from God's presence and ultimately death. We need, we need a Savior. So in verse 8 here, Paul demonstrates 
that what we believe is based in reality. He highlights only two aspects of the gospel, but they are extremely important ones. The root, the, they both root the gospel in real people, in real time, and they are externally verifiable events. We'll start with the second one he says, descended of David. It points to his Jewish lineage and the fact that he is the fulfillment of a promise that God made centuries before. It also says that Jesus was, in fact, fully man. Something that the church was already facing in the first century through a heresy called Gnosticism, which had held that true spirituality was based in some secret knowledge and that the body was inherently evil. We see that sort of thing happening today. But Paul says Jesus was a real man. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And in his body, he died a real death. And that death was for you and for me. But he didn't stay dead. And Paul points that out when he says that he is risen from the dead. The best way to understand what Paul means, the emphasis of how important this is for Paul, is to read his statements to us from 1 Corinthians 15. You'll see that on the, uh, on the overhead here too. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. If you have any questions about these things, go ask them. They're still here, though some have fallen asleep. Then at last he appeared to James and all the apostles, last of all to one untimely born. He also appeared to me. Paul's saying that our faith rests on the reality of a man who rose from the dead. Folks, that's, that's amazing, and it's real. And Paul says... As he continues in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most to be pitied. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that death no longer has a grip on us. It couldn't hold him in the grave and it will not hold you if you put your trust and faith in him. Oh, brothers, sisters, this should make us extremely confident in the gospel. And Paul says so himself, I know whom I believed and I am convinced. Friends, remember Jesus Christ. Now the good news is news to be told. It's news to be spoken. Again, one doesn't reinvent news to make it more appealing or to fit one's personal desires. That's, that's not what you do with news. News happens. And we have to deal with it. Paul was dealing with this very problem in his day. He, he mentions later in chapter 2, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection had already happened. Friends, reinventing 
reality no longer makes it real. When you hear a reinvented gospel, run away. Don't stay at that church. Don't listen to that podcast preacher. When you hear somebody changing the gospel, run away. The gospel is news. It does not change. With the vast number of churches out there that have reinvented the gospel, it's one of the reasons why we here at Redeemer are so committed that when you leave this city to another place, that you find a gospel-preaching church to get involved in. It's our covenant together. So friends, remember the gospel. Remember Jesus. Don't reinvent the history. As we look at Paul's charge to remember reality, I want to make one note about the end of verse 8, where he says, or Paul calls this, my gospel. Because we see that, we hear that a lot. Paul's, he's not saying that he's made the, the gospel somehow personal, like, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth. I, I, working on a university campus, I hear that, that, that relativism quite often. Oh, that's what you believe, well, this is what I believe. But that's not what we do with the gospel. Paul is distinguishing here when he says, as I have preached in my gospel, he's distinguishing the real gospel from all those false gospels that were already afloat at that time in the first century. Remember my gospel, Timothy, as opposed to all those other gospels out there. Remember my gospel, that which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And, and you can go ask them. The reality and the veracity of the facts that I've told you. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul's testifying to the true gospel. And he is owning the truth of the gospel. Are you owning the truth of the gospel you know, you could even say that perhaps the gospel has taken ownership of Paul. Friends, has the gospel owned you? The church is made up of people who own this truth together. We are owned by the gospel. It's, one of the, it's why one of the most important parts of our membership process in Redeemer is that elder chat that we have where a member candidate is asked to, to retell the gospel and to, to share with it how, the, how has that gospel intersected with their own life. Listen, if, if you're not a member of a church, you need to plug in with other believers. Our binding together in faith strengthens our ownership of the gospel. There's a membership class that's happening for Redeemer on June 10th. So if you're not a member, uh, take, a, take a chance to talk to one of the elders, talk to Chris Lejeune about getting involved in, in that membership process. Let me, let's go back to our scripture. Uh, and I want to skip the, to the poetry that you see at the end there, verses 11 through 13, that concludes the passage that we're looking at. It's going to shed a little bit more light to us on this gospel and its impact and, re, and our response. Now, you're not going to find this this quoted text in the rest of Scripture. That's not where it comes from. It's most likely a hymn or a creed 
that the early church would have sung or spoken, and therefore it would have been very familiar to Timothy. Let's take a look at that section now as we continue to remember the reality of the gospel. In verse 11, he says, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Look at the in- inclusive language in those first two, two uh, lines there. He says, we've died with him. We live with him. We will reign with him. This is a, a positive response to the gospel. The verbs here, in fact, give a clue as to the kind of things that Paul's referring to. L- listen to how he says, if we have died. This is a single past event rather than uh, uh, some past continuing on condition. And, and this one line can be beautifully expounded by Paul in Romans chapter 6 where, where this single past event is where a, the moment of faith comes in and a person unites with Christ in his death. In Romans 6, Paul ties this together with baptism Starting in verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus or Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Hear the inclusive language here. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. In, in our small group this week, we recognize that this line was addressing that theological category of justification. Ju- justification... It is what God does in removing the guilt and the penalty of our sin and at the same time declaring us righteous through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. This righteousness from God is credited to the sinner's account solely based on faith. Apart from all work, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone alone. Our our legal position before the holy judge of all creation changes through faith in Christ. Right right during our our prayer confession as Philip was sharing about who this God is, he holds over us because of our sin wrath and punishment. And through faith taken away. The impact of the gospel begins here in the life of one who believes. And here we see in Romans that Paul connects that with baptism. 
Baptism is that visible display of the gospel's act of justification in the new Christian's life. Hey, if, if you have believed this gospel, but you've not been baptized since you've come to faith, let me urge you to participate in the next baptism service, which is at the end of this month, May 27th. Physically laying down under the water, symbolizing the death to self, and rising again to newness of life. It's a powerful, physical, and kinetic representation of the gospel to yourself, to the church as it's gathered, and to anyone you invite to come witness that with you. If you haven't been baptized, be baptized. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Throughout this letter, besides remembering the gospel, Paul tells Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel. Paul tells Timothy he can do this. He can endure suffering because of the truth of the gospel by the power of God and by being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the last section highlighted the theological category of justification. This line highlights, in a way, the theological category of sanctification. Sanctification, it's that process through which a person is made holy. That is to be transformed from sinful thoughts and actions to righteous ones. Here you see the verb tense changes. The verb is a present perfect. It's present and continuing on. We endure now and going forward. Enduring, it literally means to suffer patiently to the end. When we endure, we deny temporal pleasures and the promises that this life would offer to us. When we endure, we don't back down when we face persecution or abuse because of the gospel. Now, now sanctification doesn't mean perfection, but rather it means a process. So where justification happens in that point in time, sanctification is that thing that, that happens over an entire lifetime. To be sure in your life there will be ups and downs as you grow in holiness, but it's that, it's that trajectory, that trajectory of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that we're aiming for, right? I'm so encouraged when I think of these big theological things. I'm so encouraged by a verse out of Hebrews 10, 14, which says, He has made perfect forever. That is justification. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's sanctification. That's the process. We are perfected. We are being made holy. So back to 2 Timothy. Why... Why would we die with him? Why would we endure? What, what would motivate a person to do that? It's, it's really the second half of those, those two lines, right? That second half of those lines points to another theological category, which we call glorification. We will live with him. We will reign with him. Those, those verbs are future perfect. They're, they're future and they're continuing on. Glorification refers to that final removal of sin 
and the transformation of our temporal, physical bodies into eternal, physical bodies when Christ returns. The writer of Hebrews holds up Jesus as an example of having one's eyes fixed on that day, that place, when everything will be new. I want to encourage you to hear the writer of Hebrews and to think yourself towards that day for the joy set before him, the joy set before him. He endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we also have this promise from Jesus, that future hope. In John's gospel, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And in Revelation 20, verse 4, talking about enduring through persecution, enduring to the end, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Friends, that's what we have to look forward to if we endure. These two lines in the creed in verses 11 and 12 speak of those who have responded in faith and repentance, who have been justified in our being sanctified in the hope of being glorified with Christ on that last day. But the next two lines of the creed, you see the tone changes dramatically to reveal what happens to those who do not respond rightly to Jesus. This is the negative response to the gospel. And though Paul speaks of we and us here, it's not with that inclusive with Jesus language like before. These lines are marking a transition in the letter between the encouragements to believe the gospel and endure and the strong warnings to Timothy about how one should walk in faith and in speech. Quotes, if we deny him, he will also deny us. These lines speak of an apostasy that Paul will soon denounce. And these warnings that from Paul come with names. Names like Philegius and Hermogenes. Names like Philetus and Hymenaeus, Demas and Alexander. These are real people who really left the faith. These warnings seem to speak not only to false teachers, however but also to those who reject that call to endure for the gospel. I hear echoes of the warnings of Mark chapter 8, where Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Now, when we read that, if we deny him, he will also deny us. It, it makes us think, well, uh, hey, what about Peter? Peter denied. Uh, Chris and I, my wife, we were talking about this earlier uh, this week, and the similarities actually between Peter's denial and Judas's betrayal are are remarkable, but their outcomes are completely different. It makes for a good study, and I would commend that to you. Look at look at the differences between these two men. For us, it's very difficult 
to discern true repentance from worldly remorse. That's the thing that really marks these two, two men. When Peter denied Christ, however, it was before he had received the Holy Spirit. When that happened at Pentecost, he never turned again. I think the call to suffer, to endure for the gospel, it exposes what's in our hearts. Do we love this life more than the promise of union with Christ? Do we love our life more than the inheritance in eternal glory that is awaiting for those in faith? Though Paul doesn't address whether these particular deniers were really Christian or not, he does teach in other places. And here in verse 10, that God has elected some to obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We're going to come back to that. The hymn continues, and what we can say for certain as we continue is that even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There's a couple ways to consider this line, and both ring a note of hope to the church. For a church experiencing defection or for the individual who has experienced defeat. Philip Towner writes concerning this line, he says, From the perspective of the church, Paul's point may be that no matter what, God's promise to save his people will not fall because some people prove to be false. From the more personal point of view, he continues, it is possible that this promise, this is a promise that God will preserve even the weakest believer. So take hope. Take hope in this line. God will keep his promises. They are grounded in the fact that he cannot deny himself. And he will ensure that his glory will fill the earth. So this first exhortation to Timothy in our passage today, that which Paul has been making throughout chapters 1 and 2, Timothy, remember the reality of the gospel. Own the gospel, Timothy, for yourself. So let me ask us, how are you understanding the reality of, of the gospel. How are you remembering it? Is it what the scripture says about this message? You don't know? Then read the scripture. Gather together with others. If your colleague or your classmate asks you, what is, what is it that a Christian believes? Would you be able to answer them? Would you be able to tell them what the gospel is in 60 seconds or less? Oftentimes that's all you have. We want our members to know the gospel and to be those who, who, who own the gospel. That's why in our membership chats, we ask prospective members to do exactly that. Share the gospel with us in 60 seconds or less. Do you own the gospel? Is it yours? Is it, is it something that's grabbed hold of your heart? Is your life any different because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you look at yourself and you, you think, you know what, my life is exactly the same, no matter if Jesus lived or died, then friend, let me encourage you to consider again the gospel. Does the gospel own you? 
If the gospel owns you, then you will have no issues with enduring everything for the gospel. That's our next point. It's Paul's second exhortation to Timothy. He's, he's mentioned this a couple times already in 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In one twelve, he says, The gospel is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed. In chapter 2, 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier. 2, 9, he says, It is this gospel for which I am suffering. And in what we just read, If we endure, we will also reign with him. And then here again, we're going to go back to uh, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Endure everything for the gospel. In that line, in that verse, there are three cause and effect relationships that I think it would be important for us to understand and grasp what Paul is saying here to Timothy and the relevance that it has for us today. He says, and I'll I'll emphasize, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that or so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So I'm going to begin with the last two and come back to the first one. Paul endures everything for the sake of, of the elect. Now, this idea of the elect or those chosen by God, it appears in all four Gospels and at least 10 of the 23 remaining books of the New Testament. The Bible emphatically speaks of election. So I'm not going to go into to that exactly, but even throughout the Old Testament, we see God choosing some over others. The big question here then is if, if God has elected some to salvation and who can stand against the will of God, then how does Paul's enduring have any impact on their obtaining the salvation that is in Christ Jesus? If God is sovereign in salvation, what role do we have? Well, it's God who calls. God who initiates. In Ephesians 1, verse 5, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. So it's God who initiates salvation. But in the most amazing intersection of his sovereignty and his love, he makes this call through us. We, we get to be a part of this, guys. This is amazing. And, it, and, and it's why we proclaim It's why we speak about the gospel. Because God has has said, I'm going to do this through you. Here here in Romans 10, verse 14 and 15, and then I'm also going to add 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes through hearing And hearing through the word of Christ. It's when we speak the gospel. That somehow in in an amazing way. That intersects with what God's already doing in this call. To bring about faith. Life in in a new believer. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Puts this together for us. We are 
His ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. <laughs> Therefore, since God has called people to Himself, we can be confident that they will be saved. But in God's wisdom, we don't know who the elect are. Therefore, we love all. We preach to all. We pray for all that they would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ because we don't know who that person might be. This makes it rather exciting, doesn't it? Makes evangelism kind of fun. Like, like finding diamonds. I, I, I read just uh, the other day about uh, a diamond of over 1,000 carats that was found in Botswana. That's a really big diamond. Lots of carrots. Evangelism is kind of like finding diamonds. Only it's, it's better. It's better than that. It's a lot of hard work. And, and, and much of the time, you're not going to find that, that precious thing. But then one day, one day, you're, you're sharing with somebody. You come across somebody that God has already been working on. God has called. And they come to faith. And, and brother, sister, there is such great rejoicing I remember, remember the day not long after Redeemer started and Rod McBoyle had been coming to church and he thought he was a Christian. He'd served in former churches, even preached, I think, he told me, though his life did not reflect the transformation of Christ. At Redeemer, he was hearing the gospel preached. He was having conversations with people about the gospel. And then one day after church, Right in the middle of the, of the pews, we were actually over at Deer City Center. I just asked him, I said, Rod, what, what is all this, what's going on with you? How's this impacting you? And right there between the rows, he repented and we prayed together for Christ to come into his life and to save him. Sometimes it's going to take lots of us to see a person come to faith. I call it tag team evangelism. You know, it's like, okay, all right, your turn. You know, come into the ring. Get into the ring with me. Well, to be sure, there's nothing more satisfying than participating with someone to obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. However, it's not always fun and rejoicing. Enduring suffering is part of the call because some, many actually, will oppose the message. Here is Paul writing this letter, sitting in a Roman prison. He's bound with chains, as he says in verse 9, not able to move about freely, smelling, seeing, and feeling the taste of death as he waits on the very threshold of his execution. As he sits in that prison, I'm, I'm sure, running through his mind, he's thinking about his Savior who just a couple decades before was in a very similar situation, Jesus bound and brought before a Roman court. Had, he suffered mocking, beating, his blinded face punched and his beard pulled. He was bound as he was whipped, a crown of thorn pressed into his brow. Jesus, bound by nails through his wrist, in his feet, to a cruel cross, suffering, shame, and pain, naked, bleeding, 
burning with asphyxiation. And yet his greatest suffering would come not from the pain, the shame, the mocking, the nails, the burning in his lungs, but from the abandonment of his father for the sake of the sin of the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, Lamb of God, Son of God, bound on the cross, suffering loss for the sake of the elect. But Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, that Word which spoke worlds into existence, that Word which called Abraham, Moses, David, that word which called the disciples to come follow me, that word which burned in the hearts of those who walked the road to Emmaus on that third day after the resurrection, that word could not be bound. And that word is not bound, my friends. The word of God is not bound. And therefore, we can have confidence. We, along with Paul, can endure everything. We can take great comfort. We can take great confidence, great joy. We can endure everything for the sake of the elect and for the glory of God. As was read in Isaiah 55, the word of the Lord will not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish the purposes for which he sent it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. That same voice that spoke creation into existence calls people now to follow him. Kingdoms totter, the earth melts as he utters his voice. How much more so as he utters a call to the individual's heart? especially as the Word of God comes with such great love, lifting our burden of sin and offering us an inheritance of inestimable value in eternal glory. God speaks, and it is so. Because the Word of God is not bound, we are confident. We are confident in our faith in the gospel we are confident in our speaking of the gospel. And we are confident through endurance for the gospel. Because the word of God is not bound, we can be confident in our faith. What he promises he will do. Our sin is atoned for. In Christ, we are justified. He empowers us towards holiness. In Christ, we are being sanctified. And he will save us through death and bring us into his eternal glory. In Christ, we will be glorified. So let us remember the reality of the gospel. This true historic event of Christ's life, death, and resurrection should make a difference in our lives. Have you owned the gospel message? Has the gospel owned you. Two things I want you to consider today if you haven't pursued these in, in, this, in this line. If you have not been baptized since you believed, come talk to me about it. And secondly, find a community group to join this week. It is part of your sanctification. 
So remember the reality of the gospel and endure everything for the gospel. Listen, to whom do you need to take courage and to speak to about Jesus? Maybe it's a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a colleague at work, maybe a classmate in school. Because the word of God is not bound, we can be confident in our speaking of the gospel. Again, even though we don't know who the elect are, it is through our speaking, through our preaching, that they are revealed. So speak boldly. Speak widely. And then rejoice in the day that God allows you to bring another to salvation. Endure everything for the gospel. Another thought on that. How might you take a stand for the gospel this week? How might you take a stand for the gospel when people are mocking? When people are are ridiculing for the gospel? When people misrepresent the gospel? How can you take a stand for the gospel? Or how can you take a stand when sin is enticing to you? How can you take a stand for the gospel in your personal holiness? Because the word of God is not bound, we can be confident in our suffering for the gospel, no matter what we face, even death itself, we can know that a sovereign God has orchestrated the whole matter. We can rest assured that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, Your word is not bound. It is living and active. It accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. Allow your word right now to accomplish its purposes in our hearts. Draw those to repentance and faith whom you are calling to yourself and lead your servants here to a stronger walk with you as they grow in confidence, remembering Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. May we, like Paul and Timothy, endure everything for the sake of the elect and the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.